0: I'll be reading from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, just the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Let's pray. Father, again, just am amazed as I look at Your Word of Your care and concern for us and how You have addressed um, really every facet of life in one way or another. You've not left us alone, and your desire, God, is to minister to us and to care for us, to sustain us. You brought us, you saved us, Lord, by your work. We know that we will be glorified when we see Jesus totally by your work, and that you would have us to live, God, in complete dependence upon you in the life that you've given us. So I pray that as we look at your word, that we would be encouraged in you and in the grace that you have supplied for us in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate again Peter um, Reed preaching for me last Sunday and um, just really appreciated all he had to say about abiding in Christ and how the Lord used him. We've been looking at... um, Just some um, topical messages on the nature of the Bible, and I'm I'm done with that now. And I've been wrestling with with um, another series to start. And as you know, my inclination is always just to stay with um, books of the Bible. At this point, I have I by my um, reckoning I've preached um, every book of the New Testament except Mark, Luke, and First Peter, and and so uh, it's hard to know. I, I've also been thinking about the prophets because I haven't done a lot of work in the prophets, preaching in the prophets, but Tom is preaching through the minor prophets. And, and not long ago, um, um, Jeff did the Gospel of Mark, and he's also done First Peter. And so they keep kind of looking at my notes and seeing what I've done, and they decide to just rip the rug out from under me. But that's okay. I still love those guys. And, but um, yeah, I, I am planning on, on starting now with, with First Peter. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Patsy wanted to go shop for paint because we're painting a, one of the rooms in the house. It's always a great delight to shop for paint. And um, my favorite color is white. Um, just keep it white, keep it simple. And um, that's not the way women think when they want to, you know, do a room. And so we were over at Home Depot looking at, at paint samples. I was laying down my, li- white, my life for my wife that day. And, um, you know, there are a lot of variations of white. Um, there, not only is there just white, there is um, eggshell. And there is, um, oh, I think there was one that said misty white. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they they've come up with all these creative names. And I thought, you know, if I were to just name paint samples, I would just say, kind of white, sort of white, pretty close to white. It just looks white to men who are standing here with their wives, but it's really not white. You know, I've just come up with all these different titles. Um, that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what I'm preaching today, but I just want to, know, to let you know I'm a funny guy. Um, Laughter But as we have been, I'm trying to make some connection out of that, looking at the inspiration of God's Word in the last number of weeks together. And it is true that the Scripture affirms every word has come from the very mouth of God and is inspired by God. And so it's all very, very significant. And we come to, a, to this letter of First Peter, obviously, It falls wholly within that category of the inspiration of God. And every word is significant. And even a salutation like this, two introductory verses, every word of this introduction is here for a reason. Now, Peter um, starts out by calling himself an apostle. And that is something that today is sometimes loosely tossed around. It feels loose to me. It's even surprising to me today that people today call themselves apostles. That hasn't happened in centuries to my knowledge of church history. That that we went really millennia until the present time without people referring to themselves as apostles. Because the early church understood that there were only a handful of people who were fulfilling an office of apostleship. And they were the men that, Paul, that Jesus chose to be his followers. Judas was among those early disciples, but chosen by Jesus, but he was not saved, and so he took took his own life. And then it seems that God raised up Paul to take his place. Paul says that he was an apostle, but one untimely born, that he didn't come into the picture, the scene, the same time as the other 11 did. In Acts chapter One, Peter and the other apostles are choosing somebody to take the place of Judas, and they chose matthias or matthias and whether or not God was involved with that is is debatable but other than those twelve or thirteen men the the scripture doesn 't often use the word apostle; sometimes it uses it in a non technical way of just anybody who is a messenger. So the men that traveled with Paul and won an occasion to to drop off money to the Jerusalem saints, those people were messengers or sent ones. Apostles was the literal word. So that was a non-technical use of it. But in terms of the technical way that Peter is making reference to himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ, when John died, the church really stopped referring to anybody as an apostle until modern times. And there are, are, are some, and I'm comfortable with this, who would say that, a, that an apostle, because it literally means one who is sent, could apply to a missionary, that God may give certain people the gift or the grace to leave their culture and, and, and speak the gospel to another culture. And I'm okay with saying that people are gifted to be missionaries, and in a way you could call them apostle, they're not fulfilling an office, they have no, no special authority over the church, but they have been sent out by the Lord and by a local church to another culture. But there are those today who feel that they are a part of a new category or a new office of apostle that is resurging today. And um, that is not anything that I see support, supported in Scripture. This seems to be an office that was, for one particular time, and it has been fulfilled, it came to a close, close, and it was those men that God was using to write in, the inspired Word of Scripture. And now our authority is, is not in men, but it is in the Word of God. And that is what we rest on. So Peter refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is where it even starts to get a little more interesting. To those who reside as aliens. Now, um, the word here literally for alien is sojourner. And then he says scattered throughout Pontus or who are dispersed throughout Pontus. And then he lists these areas of Asia Minor, the northern area of Asia Minor, where apparently Paul had not been Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, there's only three times in the New Testament this word dispersion is used. It's used in the Gospel of John, it's used in James, and here in 1 Peter. And the other two times that it's used, it is in reference to the Jews who have been dispersed. And it seems to be a formal, technical term, the um, diaspora the dispersion, which is still a term used today for the scattered Jewish people of the world. I really see no reason, textually, to say that when it is a technical term in John and James of scattered Jews, that it's not technical here as well. In other words, Peter has written this letter in particular to Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout this area of Asia Minor because of persecution. So a major theme in this letter is going to be how to respond to persecution, to suffering. There's three main main things that he's going to be talking about. Our sanctification, submission, and suffering. And in it all, God's grace is sufficient. So this is a tremendous little letter for pointing us back to the grace of God and no matter what we're going through in life. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, so this is kind of a summary statement or a purpose statement, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he's writing this letter to Christian Jews who are being persecuted And telling them, essentially, God's grace is sufficient. Stand firm in the true grace of God. God is using this suffering, this time of trial, in your scattering, in your dispersion, to sanctify you. Take God's grace. There's going to be many opportunities here to live a submissive life. Receive God's grace. And in your suffering, receive God's grace. Now, I was doing my study and I came across two commentaries that say where it says chosen, who are chosen. They pointed out to me that the word there chosen is actually early in the salutation, right at the beginning. So I got out my Greek New Testament and looked at it. And literally it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. And that totally changes the meaning of the sentence. So most English translations have written it the way that I have it here in my New American Standard. You probably have it the same in your Bible, where who are chosen is the end of the first verse. Y'all see that in your Bible? So in other words, it sounds like Peter is writing to people who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled. That may be accurate. So I asked the two of the resident Greek scholars here this morning, and we had a little bit of conversation about it. It's the Roe Sugar Men back here. Um, but the thing is, in the Greek, it's, it's in the dative. And oftentimes, a noun in the dative is, in an, is, forming, is, is serving as an adjective to the next noun. So taken that way, literally as it reads in the Greek, it's just Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. So what's the difference? Meaning, this isn't about their salvation. It's not about they have been chosen to be saved. But Peter's trying to tell them, you're being persecuted and dispersed throughout Asia Minor is not an accident. That this is God's purpose for you at this time. And I think that fits with the overall theme here of receiving the grace of God because God's at work sanctifying you. God's at work to bring you into the submission of Jesus Christ and into the suffering of Jesus Christ. So don't think that your present suffering is, is a mistake or an accident. Later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So this does to seem to, seems to be, I think, my preliminary study here in, in best keeping with the overall theme and message of this letter. He's not making reference to how they were saved he's making reference to their circumstances and that, it is, and that it fits in the purpose of God to bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ. So Paul, Peter is saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to you people who are chosen to suffer, as we all are. We haven't, and see, this is why, this, one of the reasons this letter is so important, because we're, If it it was pertinent in Peter's day, it is all the more pertinent today. Because we tend to think that every time that something goes wrong, it's because we've done something wrong. Maybe we need to have more faith. Maybe we need to repent. But Christians shouldn't be going through trials. And Peter's saying, no, you should be going through trials that we have been saved, and, and saved people, the children of God, are going to experience many of the same things that Jesus experienced. You can take it to the bank. And there's nothing wrong with your faith, should that happen. Just quickly, if you recall, you can look over Ephesians chapter 1. A while back when I was preaching through Ephesians, we noted that chosen is also used there in the beginning. And it says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So this is very similar to the salutation in 1 Peter. Just as He chose us in Him. But keep in mind here, as I noted before when we were looking at Ephesians, where is the to be verb? And, it, and as the New American Standard, I think every English translation translates it the same. None of the English translations say we are chosen to be in Him. That may be true, but there are none of the English texts say that. Somehow we get that in our head when we read this. This is talking about how we got saved. No, it's not. It's saying He chose us, us who? Those who are in Him. He chose those who are in Him, what? The end of the verse, to be holy holy. And blameless. So, this is a, a statement again about sanctification, not about salvation. If you are in Christ, God's purpose for you is to be holy and blameless. That's the point of the verse, and that's why all the English translations put the to be, to, the to be verb with holy and blameless. It does not say he chose us to be in him, it says those who are in him are chosen. To be holy and blameless. You see the difference? So the emphasis is that you as a Christian should understand God's purpose for you being saved is that you would be like Christ. Holy and blameless. And now with that in mind with 1 Peter we see much the same. The emphasis seems to be you need to understand that if you are in Christ, if you belong to him, then you are going to experience the same things that Jesus went through and that includes suffering. So don't think this is something unusual, as he says in chapter 4, verse 12, that this fiery ordeal has come upon you. This should be expected. This is the way God meant it to be, that as you put your faith in Christ, now you have become aliens in Satan's kingdom. This is no longer your home. This is not some place that you should be living to find your comfort. It's not about us. It's about being brought into conformity to Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing to the chosen aliens scattered throughout Asia Minor. They have been, they are in these circumstances, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Another hard verse. Boy, Peter really starts out with some difficult things right at the beginning here. According to the foreknowledge of God, God knew in advance what was going to be happening to you. You can also say God knew in advance whether or not you would be saved. But again, I'm not seeing this as about salvation, but about the circumstances that they are in. God knew in advance that you would be persecuted like you're being persecuted. It hasn't taken him by surprise, nor should you be surprised. Chapter 4. Verse 12. Now, if this were in respect to salvation, the Armenian position, this may be more information that you want to know, the Armenian position, and those are the folks that that believe that you could lose your salvation. That is, an, that is part of the Armenian theology. They would say that God chooses who will be saved on the basis of who He knows would respond in faith. So in that sense, according to their thinking, God does not make a choice until He first sees what we would choose. And if He sees that one of us would choose to place our faith in Christ, then God says, that's the person I will save. The problem with that view is that it makes God's choices dependent upon our choices. And it makes salvation based on what we choose rather than the grace of God. And so there are some problems, in my mind, with that strict Arminian view. That God does not decide what to do until He first knows what we're going to do. So I don't think that's very workable. Then there's the the extreme Calvinist view that basically says... That God never decides anything based on anything outside of Him. So even though God, as God would know who would be saved, that has nothing to do with God's choice. In other words, God simply suspends His knowledge when it comes to saving people. He has foreknowledge. He knows who would be saved. But the extreme Calvinist view is He just doesn't use that knowledge. He just chooses. And it has nothing to do with what he knows of who would be saved and who wouldn't. He just chooses. Well, that doesn't work either. Because how can an all-knowing God not know? How can an all-knowing God just choose not not to choose based on what he knows? And so the word here that Peter uses is very important. Again, it's that shade of white, but it's significant. According to. He doesn't say God has chosen on the basis of. That's the Arminian view. Nor does it say that God just suspends his knowledge. That's the extreme Calvinist view. But God's choice is it simultaneous with, in accordance with, what he knows is going to happen. And so that according with, means simultaneous, contemporaneous with. Now, I'm no philosopher, trust me, but I really have appreciated reading Norman Geister on this in his book, Chosen But Free. And I think he does a f- fantastic job laying out the differences between the extreme Arminian view and the extreme Calvinist view and making camping out on this word according to. And he points out that in eternity, God is not thinking sequentially. He is the present tense, I am. And so his knowledge and his choice occur simultaneously. They are contemporaneous. And so there's no linear progression here with God. And so God knows who would respond. He doesn't ignore what he knows. And God chooses But what he chooses is not based on something because then God is dependent upon that. But it happens simultaneously. God knows, God chooses, it's one event. But again, just to take some of the air out of the argument, this isn't about, as I read this, this has nothing to do with salvation. This is about the circumstances that they're in. God knew, God knew, and God chose that this would happen. And then he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Why doesn't it say by the saving work of the Spirit? See, every word is significant. And you know, we look at those shades of white and we go, what difference does it make? It makes a big difference. It doesn't say, because again, how we, are, we are born again by the Spirit of God. And Peter's going to make reference later to the imperishable um, seed by which we are born. And so we are born by the Spirit of God. But this doesn't say we have been saved. It's talking about sanctification. And look what happens. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ. We have been saved. And we are being sanctified that we might be people who obey Jesus Christ. I often say to our students that there is a difference between assurance of salvation and evidence of salvation. The assurance of our salvation is not obedience. But the evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ is that we obey Him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is the evidence of salvation. The assurance of our salvation is not our obedience. The assurance of our salvation is what God has said in His Word. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ shall be saved. And that's what we take to the bank. That's different assurance from evidence. But we have been saved. Not that we would continue in disobedience. But that we might walk in obedience with Him. Word order here matters. The Spirit is sanctifying. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is that we might obey, that has to do with sanctification. And be sprinkled with His blood. There are about three times in the Old Testament where sprinkling of blood takes place. In every occasion, it has to do with something is being identified and purified. So it's being identified with the lamb of God who would ultimately come and shed his blood for us. But it also deals with purification, that this object or these people are being cleansed of their sin. Now, word order matters. This is not in other words, it seems to me a reference to salvation, atonement, The sprinkled with the blood of Christ. But it follows obedience to Christ. And it seems to be that Peter is simply saying, what's happening here, folks, is you're scattered. And you're being persecuted. And it's not a mistake. God knew this would be happening. And God's purpose in it is to bring about further Likeness to Jesus Christ, sanctification, to cause you to learn to obey Him in suffering. And the consequence that happens from that is you become purified, practically, not positionally, but experientially. This is sanctification. You find yourself being purified from the things of this world because you're suffering at the hands of the world. See, when we suffer, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to throw in the towel and say, it's not worth it. I'd rather be like the world than be persecuted by the world. That's one option. Or the other is to go, I thought they were my friends, and they're doing this to me. And it makes a very clear demarcation. We are not the world anymore, and they will never be our friend. And so it starts to put steel in you. Because you go, I know who I am now, and they're not my friends. I remember just recently, we were in, with going through Bible study methods with the students at His Hill. I pointed out to them, and I do this when we look at 1 Corinthians. Paul starts out that letter to the Corinthians, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes, our brother. Well, who is Sosthenes? Well, you go back to Acts, I think it's chapter 18, and you see that Sosthenes was the leader of the synagogue at the time, and it was his idea to take Paul to court, and basically to sue him in a Gentile court for preaching the gospel, with the idea being it was illegal, according to Roman law. So the Roman judge hears what the case is about, and he tosses it. And he says to the Jews, This isn't about Roman law. This is about your law. Get out of my courtroom. Well, now it blew up in their faces. It backfired. And so Sosthenes' brilliant idea to have Paul labeled an outlaw because he is supposedly preaching the gospel against Roman law has totally backfired. And now basically the court is saying Paul has done nothing illegal. And so the Jews were furious. And it says that they turned on Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they started beating him right there in the courtroom. And we never hear of Sosthenes again until 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first verse. And Paul says, Sosthenes, our brother. And so I wonder if what happened in that moment when Sosthenes is getting beaten up, that Paul did something that only would happen when a person is in Christ and he is functioning according to Christ. Paul didn't fold his arms and say, yeah, my enemy's getting what he deserves. I wonder, in fact, I'm pretty sure, Paul got down there and tried to keep those men from beating up Sosthenes. And when it was all over, and Sosthenes was beaten and bloodied, he looks around, and the man he thought was his enemy is beaten and bloodied as well. And that man had an epiphany that day. A revelation. I know who my friends are. And it's not the ones I thought. This man. And he gives his life to Christ. Somewhere between being beaten up and 1 Corinthians being written, that man gave his life to Jesus. And I happen to think Paul had a lot to do with it. Suffering. Even for the unbeliever, doesn't it do a lot to show them who really loves them? Who really stands with them? You have unbelievers right now that are going, in your life that are going through tremendous trial. How we respond to them may be the catalyst God uses to see them come to faith in Christ. Loving them, serving them, not preaching at them, just standing with them, helping them, being there for them. When you place your faith in Christ, all manner of trials are coming down the pike. None of them surprise God. All of them, even though they come at the hands of persecuting evil people, all of them, God knew about and God permitted. No exception. And we can go I can take comfort in this, in the not in the suffering, but in the knowledge that this is not accidental. God knew. And God chose. And God is using this to bring me into greater conformity to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And in these sufferings, I have two choices. I can throw in the towel and and give in to the persecutors, the ones that are afflicting. Or I can say, I belong to Jesus, and by faith I will obey him. And when you make that choice, it doesn't mean the suffering is going to let up. It could mean that it will increase, probably will increase all the more. And you will find yourself being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a very graphic illustration. It's kind of gory. Who wants to have blood splattered on them? But God intends that His people have blood splattered on them. The blood of Jesus Christ. That what is true of Him would also be true with us. And we'd be okay with that. Speaks of being identified with Jesus, speaks of being purified. By the blood of Jesus. That happens positionally the moment we place our faith in Christ. But it also, God says, is going to happen experientially. And God's main tool for bringing it to bear in our life is suffering and trial. No wonder then, he says, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Because life is hard. And God intends it to be so. If I'm reading these verses right, God intends it to be this way. Maybe that's why we have, what, maybe a hundred people here and not a hundred thousand here. Because it's not a very popular message. Man, you can bring in the crowds, apparently, to say God intends you to not suffer, to not be sick, to not have financial problems, to not have health problems, to not have marriage problems, to not have problems with your children. Apparently, that message really draws a crowd. But if I'm reading these verses correctly, Paul's saying, Peter's, I keep saying Paul, Peter's saying, God knew, he foreknew. And God chose that you would go through these things so that you might experience the sanctifying work of the Spirit, be brought to obedience, and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Now, after giving that message, no surprise, Peter says, may you know the grace and peace of God. There have been different times when Patsy and I have counseled with, with students. Occasionally somebody will come to just a deep personal understanding for the first time in their life of their wretchedness. And it's not because I'm standing in class going, you're wretched, you're wretched, you're wretched. But thanks for paying tuition to come to his hill this year. <laughs> No, I'm not doing that. But the Spirit will. And good kids from good homes who have never done anything bad, the Spirit of God starts saying to them, there is nothing good in you apart from me. Whoa, nobody's ever told me that before. God's Spirit says nobody's been telling you the truth before. Everybody's been building you up. Telling you what a wonderful person you are. That the world is, should be happy to have you walking on the planet. Yeah? And the Spirit says, There is nothing good in you except for me. We don't like to hear it. Sometimes they've come to our house, and they're sitting in the, ho- in the house in the living room just bawling. <laughs> I'm a wretched person. There's nothing good in me. Tell me it's not so. Tell me it's not so. And all I can think to say is, may grace and peace be upon you. (laughs) Right? I mean, do do we really want to get in the place of telling people contrary to what God is saying? Oh, you're wonderful. Don't have these thoughts. No, and God's saying, you need me desperately. Because apart from me, you are desperately wicked. And so our role is to say, this is the truth, folks. Bad things happen to good people, and God intended it. Not because God is evil or because God wants to hurt us, but God's agenda is conformity to Jesus Christ. We don't have that agenda for ourselves. When it, if we, do we really, really mean it? We say, God, whatever it takes, bring me into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Except, <laughs> no cancer, right? No wayward children. No, no getting fired from my job. No persecution at work. But God is totally committed to us being brought into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're going to have another wedding soon in the church. And I've been meeting with Eric and Cassidy. Patsy and I have Sunday evenings and getting them prepared for what they're about to experience. And, and, and I just told them not long ago, says, you need to understand you're going to see things about yourselves that you never saw before. And your temptation is going to be to look at the other person and say, You caused that. I didn't used to be this way. I was never like this until I married you. You're the problem. No. It's always been in you. But God's using the marriage to bring it out. To expose what you weren't willing to see before. Couldn't see before. Because God's intention, more than anything else, is not to have Uh, Our goal is happy marriage, first and foremost. God's goal is Christ-likeness, first and foremost. And marriage is just one more tool in his toolbox to bring that about. God knew when you got married that these things were going to come to the surface. He knew that. And he still allowed you to marry that person. Because his goal is obedience to Jesus Christ. Sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. That we might be sanctified. Brought into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there is not a person in this room that does not constantly need God's grace and peace. Because God's purpose will not coddle us. It's hard. And we can't do it. We cannot go through the sanctifying processes of God on our own. We couldn't get saved on our own, and we can't go through the sanctifying work of God on our own. It requires the grace of God. And God wants us to know His grace and His peace. Peace because I don't have to think what is wrong, but peace because I know God is in control. There's nothing that happened that God didn't know about it beforehand. Thank you, Jesus. Peace. And grace, not just grace, my sins have been covered, but grace, I need your help. I need your enabling. Hebrews says that we can come to the throne of grace to receive grace and help in our time of need. And we can come boldly before before the throne of grace. Grace, enabling the strength of God. And then it might be ours in fullest measure. Every word here is significant. I think we, we miss the main thrust of this passage. if we immediately start thinking about salvation, when we think about the blood of Jesus Christ, or when we think about chosen. I really don't think Paul's wanting to orient people toward that, Peter. But he's wanting people to be oriented toward the grace and peace of God in the midst of trial. God's grace is sufficient. And His peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we lay everything before Him with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let me close us in prayer.